Welcome to the My Psychology Podcast. Thanks for joining us. My name is Andy Pomerantz, and I'm a psychology professor at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. I also happen to be the author of the My Psychology textbook from Macmillan Learning. In each episode of this podcast, instructors from various colleges and universities join me to talk about the most important and most interesting parts of the chapter to help you understand and appreciate them. As we do, we will share some stories about our own experiences with concepts from the chapter from inside or outside of the classroom. Okay, for this episode on Chapter 12, Personality, I am joined by Dr. Ava Selly, Principal Lecturer in the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University. Hi, Ava. Morning, Andy. Thanks for being with us. Thanks. And also by Dr. Alan Whitehead, a professor of psychology at Southern Virginia University. Hi, Alan. Hello there. Hi, thanks for being with us. So here's a quick summary of Chapter 12, Personality. After first defining personality and explaining how genes and environment both influence it, the chapter has sections on four major personality theories, psychodynamic, humanistic, behavioral and social cognitive, and trait theory. The psychodynamic theory comes from Sigmund Freud, and it emphasizes unconscious forces and early childhood experiences. The humanistic theory comes from Carl Rogers and emphasizes people's inherent tendencies toward healthy, positive growth and self-fulfillment. The behavioral and social cognitive theories emphasize the role of the environment, as well as cognitive and social factors in shaping personality. And trait theory emphasizes the discovery of the basic underlying traits in human personality, leading to the five-factor model of personality. The chapter ends with a section on personality assessment, describing the kinds of tests that psychologists use with their clients. So where do we want to start? Ava or Alan, what's, a, what's an interesting topic in Chapter 12 that you wanted to, to get into? Well, to start, uh, where I like to start with my students is this just how this particular chapter reflects those schools of thought, those historical schools of thought that we talked about early in the semester. So um, historically, we talk about psychoanalysis, behaviorism, and humanism as those sort of three traditional schools of thought. And here we have them reflected in the development of personality. And the same issues that we talked about earlier in the textbook come up here, but now in terms of how those um, schools of thought theorize that we become who we are. So that we have, you know, psychoanalysis, which sees us as sort of a product of anxiety and inner conflict between these various aspects of our mind. Uh, behaviorism sees us as sort of shaped by the environment. And humanism as this sort of like self as frustrations to human potential and, you know, the congruence or lack of congruence between real and ideal selves. So it's a nice application and understanding of where we came from in terms of psychological theories and what those theories say about who we are. Yeah, that last phrase, who we are, is really what this chapter is all about, personality. Um, these are explanations for how you got the personality you got and how everybody else got the personality that they got. Exactly. And, and you know, I, I really try to emphasize that these are not three completely separate, unrelated approaches because they are reactions to one another. You know, you have psychoanalysis, which recognizes unconscious forces, but is pretty negative and, and fairly unscientific. Then you've got behaviorism, which is really scientific, but sort of reduces us to these stimulus uh, response contingencies. And then you've got humanism, which is very positive and rich in reaction to psychoanalysis and, hum uh, and behaviorism, 
but it's also unscientific in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And that notion of, of them being um, reactions to each other, I think is so important. So many people coming into this type of a class have heard of Sigmund Freud, but maybe that's about it. Or they have this, this image, this mental concept of him, you know, uh, this, this white beard, the cigar, you know, sitting in a chair, somebody talking about their feelings. And that's kind of the image of psychology that a lot of individuals have. Um, and I, I think it's so important to at least expose or to have the students understand what psychodynamic theory means or they've heard of the id the superego the ego they've heard of these things but not quite understand them and i think that's a really important thing that this chapter does and i think does really well is help students understand oh these are what these things are and this is why people talk about them in the way that they do and the and the other thing i think is really important is this idea of the unconscious and helping them understand that when we talk about the unconscious as opposed to being unconscious, they're a little bit different. And and I, I think that's really important for students to remember when we talk about the unconscious uh, and, and some of the drives that are that are present there. Yeah. There's a table in the book that um, that explains some different uh, translations of Freud's work, in particular, the words id, ego and superego. Those are Latin terms, and when Freud's work was translated into English, the translator chose Latin terms instead of sort of more typical uh, common English words for them. And my hope by including that table was to sort of normalize those terms and make them seem a little more familiar. That you know, Because id essentially means it, which emphasizes sort of the animalistic, the way you would, would call an animal it instead of he or she or any other sort of... Uh, more human sounding kind of pronoun. Uh, and the ego simply means me and the super ego simply means above me. So if you think of those terms with their with the, the Latin terminology that that is always used when people study Freud, they can seem a little sort of inaccessible and unfamiliar. But if you if you let yourself sort of entertain the more common English translations, uh, which are not all that commonly used in the psychology world, but um, but I, I thought students would could find helpful it and me and above me. Um, hopefully that makes it a little bit more uh, approachable and, and understandable for students. And so this is this idea, this concept of personality. And what I try to do is I, I, I use this example in a lot of different uh, subjects that we talk about is I, I tell them to imagine a tree. And if we're walking around this tree, we all look at the tree, but they're from different perspectives. And so Freud looks at it from one way and Rogers and Maslow look at it from another and Jung and Horney look at it from another. You know, you get all these different perspectives that are trying to understand the same thing, but they do it in slightly different ways. And so as we kind of travel around this, we're able to see these different perspectives and to, to glean something, I think, from each of them. And I think that resonates with the students. I think that they kind of start to understand, that, oh, okay, they're different perspectives. Just because one person says one thing, I don't have to accept that. That That isn't the way. It's just one way that people are trying to understand that. Yeah, and I think that that really sort of addresses a key question that a lot of students ask is like, okay, so which one's right? You know, so which one's like... Uh, like the theory of personality or, or, you know, which one has, you know, sort of unequivocal support and, and there's no such thing, you know, there, because, because some of them are supported more than others, but they really do look at things from different angles. 
Definitely. I'm, I'm, I'm glad as we're shifting into a conversation about the, the, the five factor model of personality or the big five here, there's a, um, there's a figure in the book, uh, in this chapter where it's sort of a colorful figure that, that describes each of those big five, um, neuroticism, extroversion, openness, conscientiousness, and agreeableness. And it is intentionally designed as a number line, like not as, not as simply here's what, here's what high on that trait means and here's what low on that trait means but there's a number line to indicate that a person could fall anywhere along those lines when i talk about it in class when i bring up this idea of the big five or the idea of a um a continuum of person of a personality trait i like to talk about height and and i'll say to people like like you know imagine that you were curious about someone's height someone you hadn't met and so you ask your friend who knows the person do they have height you know, your friend would, 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 would hear that as a very odd question and a very poorly designed question, poorly worded question, because you could, I mean, I guess your I guess the friend could provide a yes or no answer to the question. You're like, yeah, they have height or no, they don't have height, but it, it requires sort of like a, a mental exercise where you get, you have to like, first of all, decide where's the cutoff, like where's the line between having height and not having height. And that's kind of arbitrary and arguable and and then putting that person in the category, in the yes category or the no category, they have height or they don't have height. And as soon as you put them in that category, you can tell that, that the category is like too big. Like there's too much variation within that. Of course, you wouldn't ask the question that way. You would ask the question, how tall are they? And each of us thinks along a continuum that the, the, a certain, you know, a certain height, certain number of inches or you know, feet, inches, centimeters, however, however it would be measured. That's how people think about height. And it seems kind of... Um, almost nonsensical to think about height categorically. Do they have height or then? And then we, then I switch over to personality and I say, so, so if we're talking about one of these personality traits like neuroticism or extroversion, extroversion is actually a good example because people sometimes will talk very categorically about he's an extrovert, he's an introvert, she's an extrovert, she's an introvert. But really there, it's a continuum between those things where a person, where a lot of us fall somewhere in the middle and to make things even more complicated, the situation makes a big difference. Somebody who's introverted in one situation could be extroverted in another situation. So all of that, I, I guess, is to is to is to emphasize to students that the, the personality is complex and nuanced. If by the end of this chapter you are able to kind of think in that more cognitively sophisticated way, and 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 it's not, it doesn't feel like like you have to um, reduce everything to to simple categories. I think that's a big step forward in cognitive development. You talk about this uh, this idea of situational changes, Andy, and I think that's that's an important one. Wouldn't that be interesting if we could we could talk to people? Is this person are they tall or are they short? Um, and then you could say, well, it depends on the situation. I mean, wouldn't that be interesting? Is to say my my height depends on the situation. I mean, the, to me, it's it's kind of a, an interesting way of looking at it because our personalities are so complex, and it does depend on situation. It depends on on how I'm feeling that day. Did I have breakfast? Did I not? Uh, did someone yell at me that day? Or, you know, was I running late? There's so many factors. Imagine if those things changed our height, for example, uh, which are, is a little bit more obvious for us to, to see in, in someone else. So it, it is situational. There are so many different factors. It's a great point. And it makes me think about the the, um, the idea of sort of the, the, the relative amount of a, of a particular trait that a person has. Because when you, when you said that, Alan, I was thinking about how you know, let's say there's a man who's six foot five. Well, generally that's a very tall man, but a man who's six foot five, who's in the NBA, 
you know, professional basketball player would actually be kind of short. Uh, there, you know, a lot of people on, on a lot of people that he plays against or that he plays with are going to be taller than him. It just makes me, makes me realize like if you're, if you're with, like, let's say your family tends to be very, very extroverted and you're kind of extroverted generally speaking by comparison to them you're actually quite introverted they might see you as the introvert you know in the same way that if your family's all very tall and you happen to be just a little bit tall you'll be seen as short so it's you know it's part of part of the um identity that each one of us develops in terms of our personality happens in the context of who we're around family members friends that kind of thing i also like to contrast the fact that that trade approaches like the big five are fundamentally different from these other approaches that we've been talking about in the chapter because they are sort of less theoretical in terms of explaining how we got there, right? You know, trade approaches are mostly about finding how to describe personality, what are the building blocks of personality, how do the various combinations um, sort of the of these ingredients um, show us who we are, but they don't necessarily explain who we are and how we became that way. Whereas the more traditional school of thought, that's that's what they're about. They're about how you became who you are and less about describing it independent of that theoretical approach. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's um, the trait model, which is the most recent uh, historically of the ones that we cover in the book. Um, yeah, it's all about you know, what is personality made of? Like, what are those ingredients that make up human personality? And and you're right, it's it's it doesn't really delve into how we got that way, how, why this person is more neurotic than that person, why someone else is less conscientious than, than another person. You know, nothing about uh, childhood experiences or, right. or any kind of experiences that that would shape that. Yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting sort of twist in the in the story of 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 the study of personality, sort of a, a steering away from that question of how did how did each person get their personality and steering toward like oh, wait a minute, what what are the personality traits that right. that, that, that the people ultimately have? Okay, let's take a quick break here and when we come back, we will continue our discussion of chapter 12 personality. The My Psychology Podcast is brought to you by Launchpad from Macmillan Learning. When I wrote My Psychology, I wanted students to maximize their connection to the science of psychology, and Launchpad does just that. It's the one place where you can find the full ebook of My Psychology, features like My Take videos, chapter apps, and Show Me More links, and Macmillan's full library of resources, including videos, flashcards, concept practice activities, and more. Best of all, Launchpad includes the Learning Curve Adaptive Quizzing System, designed based on cognitive research to improve your learning and help you retain information over time. In addition, the Learning Curve algorithm chooses questions based on your performance, delivering a quiz that is unique to you. If you aren't using Launchpad already, you can sign up for a free trial right now. That's right, you can get 21 days of free access right now by visiting launchpadworks.com and searching for my psychology that's launchpadworks.com sign up now for your 21 days of free access and start studying with the learning curve adaptive quizzing system welcome back we are here discussing chapter 12 personality of the my psychology textbook i'm andy pomerantz professor of psychology at southern illinois university edwardsville and author of the my psychology textbook and with me are dr ava selly she is a principal lecturer in the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University. 
along with Dr. Alan Whitehead, a professor of psychology at Southern Virginia University. So what else from chapter 12? What are some other topics that we wanted to highlight for students? And one one topic that I talk about um, and I kind of sort of pick out and highlight has to do with locus of control. And, you know, in 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 terms of locus of control being one of the elements of the sort of, um, you know, social cognitive approaches, the behavioral and social cognitive approaches, I, I really sort of emphasize to students how important this idea is. So there's certain concepts that we talk about that I really like to apply to everyday life and try to to highlight as a tool to understanding ourselves and how we react to the world. And I think locus of control is such an incredibly important one. And the book does a great job as both um, in sort of explaining it and then in a text box explaining how that may have changed over time that sort of uh, things that we deal with in our everyday lives, the actual loss of control over certain elements of of, of of our lives may actually shift our perceptions about how much control we have. And so I give examples about, you know, tests for, you know, it's sort of the classic example for students of, you know, you get an exam back and, you know, you didn't do well. What does that mean? You know, what, what, what is that telling you about yourself or about the exam or about the professor or about your behavior? And that, very much I see, I, you know, and I talk about my own anecdotal experiences on this, that I see an enormous difference between students who end up in my office to, you know, look at an exam. They make an appointment to look at an exam. And I, I you know, I always wonder, okay, sort of what is this meeting going to be about? Is this meeting going to be about like, this exam was too hard. It was not fair. I didn't have a score, you know, a fair shake at it. And I'm going to try to look for mistakes in the grading and try to get some points back. Or is it, hey, I kind of want, want to understand what went wrong here so I can study better for the next test. And those, those approaches to me tend to signal basically some sort of pers important personality difference in students because, you know, the first student is you know, is reflecting a locus of control that seems to suggest that they had nothing to do with it or very little to do with it. The test happened to them. You know, the grade happened to them. Um, <laughs> happened and, to them. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, exactly. That mm -hmm. it's all, you know, external circumstances and that the implication really is that there's really not much they can do about it. You know, uh, they can sit, they can try to get some points back. And, you know, I, I make it clear to students that this does not include situations where there is an actual error on the test or there is something unfair in the grading that, you know, presuming that the test is error free and that, in fact, it was fair insofar that, you know, other students um, did find that there's a, you know, there's a, an accept, acceptable sort of grade distribution. And then looking at things this way can really be harmful because it's sort of throwing up your arms and saying, oh, you know, this, you know, as I said, this happened to me and, you know, it is likely to happen again. 
and there's not much I can do about it. Whereas the other approach, I see students come in and try to understand and ask questions and, and you know, why, why was this wrong? Well, and then I explain it and they're like, oh, okay. And then they think about it. They say something like, oh, I need to read more carefully. I, did, I misread the question or, oh, I don't think I studied enough, right? So this idea that there's something that they can do that they can change that really puts this back, you know, they puts them back in the driver's seat of how they're going to do in this class. So I think it's an important thing because you hear it in people's explanations of both good things and bad things, because you also hear it in far as, as good things are concerned. You know, if you did well on the test, can you own it? You know, can you say, hey, yeah, I studied hard. I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty smart cookie. Or is it like, ah, oh, it was easy. I got lucky, you know, that kind of thing. That makes a difference too in terms of how you feel about yourself and how powerful you feel is, you know, in your life in general, or at least in this particular set of circumstances. Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the things that I hope students um I hope they get when they read this internal and external locus of control section is is the ability to sort of check their locus of control, if you know what I mean. So because I think all of us tend to have a sort of a natural tendency toward one side or the other. Maybe we're a little more, we have a little bit more of an internal locus of control or a little bit more of an external locus of control. It may differ from one situation to another, but the ability to like have that initial interpretation, like like in the example you just described, Ava, that the student who's in, whose first reaction is, well, this happened to me, this grade happened to me, this test happened to me, it had nothing to do with me. If they are able to have that first initial reaction, but then sort of check it and be like, wait a minute, maybe maybe I had something to do with this. Maybe it has something to do with me and how I studied or didn't study. So it's it's interesting how people can be both and people can have internal and external loci, is that the right word? Loci, yeah. <laughs> I wish it was just locations. I wish, I wish for, for the student's sake, I wish it was, the word was just location, location of control. Um, anyway, it could be both internal and external because it, it's, it's just interesting how those things can combine in, in a single situation. And it goes to the point that, you know, there are in fact nuances that, that it's not, are you this or that, but it's how this or that are you, you know, how much external or internal locus of control do you have? And again, in particular circumstances, you know, something that you know, well, for example, that, that you're good at, you may have more of an internal locus of control and where something that's new to you, that you're not that familiar with, that you're struggling with you may not have that same feeling of internal locus of control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think there's something else important here is that, uh, you know, along these lines is when we talk about personality, uh, research shows that it tends to be stable over time. But I hope that doesn't leave the students feeling, oh, that's just the way I am. I can't do anything about it. And so when we talk about locus of control as an example, we can make choices. We might have an initial reaction to something, but we can, to your point, Andy, we have the agency to be able to say, oh, wait a minute, I can still choose this, even though there might be a tendency towards something else. We can do that. And that may be more or less difficult depending on, you know, which way we view personality. But uh, again, why there is stability over time, we still have the agency to make changes and to alter course, as it were. And the yeah. first step to doing so is is labeling it, which is why, you know, I get so excited, you know, teaching intro psych. I think it's so valuable because 
I want students to have those aha moments of like, oh, wow, there's a name for that. And oh, I can recognize that in my everyday life. And it gives them a language to to see things when they happen, because locus of control, once you know what it is, like you can you can start looking around, you can hear things that people say. And you can see how that's reflected in their language. And once you know that that's a construct and you know what that construct is called, then yeah, you can label it and identify it and possibly even make shifts in it in your, in, in your life. And so this is a good time to pause and reflect back on the way we talk about development. Uh, when we talk about Bandura and his approaches to things, we can bridge that back into learning uh, Maslow and self-actualization, even locus of control, we can talk about motivation uh, to help students understand that these aren't isolated topics, that we don't just look at it from one thing to the other, that they're all interconnected. And, and hopefully, as we grow and learn throughout the semester, their, their holistic approach to understanding human behavior, including their own, is growing and is more multifaceted, where they can see things from these various perspectives. Uh, I think that this chapter does a great job of, of looking at a number of those. Well, thanks. I, ho I hope the students feel the same way. <laughs> well, big thanks to my guests, Dr. Ava Selly, who is a principal lecturer in the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University, and Dr. Alan Whitehead, professor of psychology at Southern Virginia University, as we wrap up this episode of the podcast on Chapter 12, Personality. And thanks to all of you for listening. We hope this podcast helps you learn and appreciate the material in this chapter. Of course, you should check with your own instructor to see what's most important in your own class. And for more resources for studying this chapter, check out Launchpad at launchpadworks.com. Talk to you again soon.